Hi, my name is Derek Hansen. I'm the VP of Solutions Architecture at Ubico, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. This is episode 277 for June 20th, 2022. Uh, we've got an interview show for you today. I'm going to be talking with Derek Hansen, who is a VP at Ubico. Uh, you may recognize the name from YubiKey, which are these cool little security hardware keys. And again, I don't do infomercials, but we're going to be talking around that subject today for sure, because we're going to be talking about authentication and passwords and and why they suck so bad and why we were so bad at using them. And luckily, we're also going to be looking at a passwordless future where we no longer have to deal with them and phishing becomes a thing of the past and data breaches become a lot less important and it can't happen soon enough. So we're, we're going to be talking about that shortly here uh, with Derek. A couple quick notes before we start. First of all, the new patron promotion for the Dragon Challenge coins was a massive, massive success. Uh, that worked out really well. Welcome to all my new patrons. Thank you so, so much. Uh, that is now going to unlock the capability for me to get some website work done that's been uh, long overdue. Now, for those of you who became patrons as part of this promotion, if you became a patron in, in May, your Dragon Challenge coin or coins uh, should be shipping here shortly. And for those of you who became a patron this month in June, your coins should ship in July. They are really cool. I hope you enjoy them. And again, hey, if for some reason you happen to meet me in person, you could produce the coin. That's worth a drink on me. Now, one more thing I'm going to at least partially address a long-standing listener request. And I do listen to my listeners. I have an annual listener survey that I put out in January and I take constructive feedback at any point from my listeners. You can always shoot me a note at feedback at firewalls. Don't stop dragons.com. Uh, but one of the things that some people have requested and something I've actually wanted to do is give you chapter markers. And if this were a standard that was well supported, what that would mean is that you would be able to skip quickly to, for example, to different news stories uh, during the news shows or to different sections of the uh, of an interview. Unfortunately, as I alluded to, this technology is not widely supported. It's not very standardized, but uh, it occurred to me when I saw another podcast that did this, one way I could address this, partially at least, would be to have a table of contents a bullet list in the show notes with timestamps. So at least if you uh, really want to jump to or jump back to some particular portion of the show, you can find that timestamp and kind of scrub to that time position and, and be right there. I tried to do this last week, actually. And at the last minute, I realized because I, I went to test this. I had actually had all the markers in there on the table of contents in the show notes. And then I just, well, you know, I thought, let me, let me try it and let me, let me make sure this is actually working. And it's a good thing I did because it, it didn't work. And I figured out over the course of the last week that the reason it didn't work is because I was using, and I don't want to get too technical here, but I was using variable rate encoding for the MP3 files for the show. Uh, and that threw off the timestamps. So uh, I am now switching to constant bitrate encoding. And that seems to have fixed the problem. So we're going to give this a try. And you can look at the table of contents in the show notes. And you will should see there a, a list of the major, you know, chapters of each of my shows and with timestamps. And you should be able to jump right to or right back to one of those timestamps if you wish. Now, I did mention that there was a nasty Microsoft bug that was out in the wild on basically every version of Windows that has since been patched. It came out in last week's Patch Tuesday uh, regular monthly Microsoft 
uh, software update. So be sure to uh, to update. You should always update anyway, but uh, this week in particular, be sure that you update your Windows systems. All right, real quick, before we get into the interview, we throw out a couple terms in there that I want to quickly define. We talk about the W3C, which is the WWWC or the World Wide Web Consortium. So you can see why we shorten that to W3C. Also talk about MFA, which of course is multi-factor authentication and OTP, which is a one-time PIN. So with that housekeeping out of the way, let's get to our interview with Jarek Hansen from Ubico. Derek Hansen has been involved in the identity and security industry for over 10 years. He's been building networks and deploying computer systems since the mid-1990s and now is an advocate for how you can best protect them. And he is now the VP of Solutions Architecture and Alliances at Ubico. Welcome to the show, Derek. Oh, thank you for having me, Derek. So let's start with the basics. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Ubico and uh, what you do there? Sure. So Ubico was founded to make access to the internet accessible for everyone and trustworthy for everyone. We are, our goal is to enable people to trust the internet again. And, and that's, a, that's a very bold statement <laughs> yes. in, in this current world. My role inside Ubico is, is constantly kind of evolving. But where, where I sit, we are working with our partners and our customers to really understand how can we build the products they need so that they can be secure. And then also to do uh, work to amplify that message about what is what is mm -hmm. evolving. How can you mm -hmm. go use these new tools and these new technologies to meet your your requirements and the business mandates that may have occurred? Mm -hmm. So um, it really is this conversation about helping large enterprises and small organizations use what's available to them today to secure themselves the best way possible. All right. And, and if people don't know that if they've heard of YubiKey, that is one of your key products. And we'll kind of talk about that tangentially a little bit today. But what we're going to talk about today is, is more about authentication and identity. And this is these are two big kind of philosophical questions that I think a lot of us maybe take for granted. You know, I've got a username and a password, but there's a lot behind behind that. And there's a lot of a lot of thought went into coming to these processes uh, that we just take for granted today. So let, let's talk a little bit about maybe how we got here. So the, you know, the user ID and password authentication method has been around basically since the dawn of computers, you know, decades ago, because, you know, back then we didn't have fingerprint readers and face scanners, you know, we had keyboards, right? So that was kind of the obvious kind of go-to, but nevertheless, people hate passwords, <laughs> but it's still the primary method for online authentication today, really. Uh, so let's wax philosophical a little bit here and kind of go back through the past. How did, how did we get here and why have we been stuck here all these years? Well, how we got here, when you look at the, the password and really just the concept behind a password is it's something that you gave a, a secret to, somebody that you may not have known so that they could be trusted. You know, you look back at some of the earliest evidences of the use of passwords. Um, there's examples of uh, the Roman army using them so that somebody could come up and declare that they were known. Hmm. You knew the secret word. And so uh, passwords have been around with humanity for thousands of years in a concept of, I know a secret, that secret's good enough for me to prove to you that I belong. And when we really started needing to secure some of the systems, um, you start go looking at the stories around uh, passwords and passwords abuse and where they were first mm. hacked, you see that what happened is there, there's a story out of the 1960s where there uh, was a mainframe time that was being needing to be divided up evenly. 
somebody was using more than their fair share. And so they created this system so that they could kind of enforce who got to use this mainframe time. Hmm. And they protected that by using a username and a password, because that was a secret that you could set up and you could control. Mm-hmm. That is also the very first time where somebody hacked a password <laughs> because the guy that wanted the more mainframe time ended up guessing his, uh, his colleague's password <laughs> and was able to use some more of that time. So it, it's basically this human concept of a, of a, a white picket fence. Um, I'm going to let you through this picket fence if I know who you are. And the way I know who you are is, is a password. It's not the most secure method of anything that we do, Hmm. but it's really one of the things that is most cognitively understood by all of us uh, from the times where we've had secret codes to enter a fort as a kid when you're playing Mm -hmm. games. And so when it came time to secure computers, we understood how to do that. The problem is, is a password works in certain scenarios. It does start to fall on its face as you get to scale. Mm-hmm. And as you get to systems that are connected to the internet and then you get to the fact that people fundamentally are bad at remembering <sighs> secrets. Yeah. They're good at sharing them. They're bad at keeping them. <laughs> right. And so when you get into the system with passwords and authentication today, what we have is a massive proliferation of secrets that you're supposed to manage that you're supposed to think through. And we've put all of this pain on the users to not only make it a secret, but to try and keep a unique secret everywhere they go and to try and remember not just your password, but what was my user ID there? Mm. Yeah. In, in, In these systems today, you're not just saying, here's my password. You're saying, here's the name I'll go by. Sometimes that's going to be your official, you know, email address. Mm-hmm. This is my this is my official email. Sometimes you don't actually want it tied to you right. um, as to who you are, and you want to remain anonymous, but you still need to have access to that account. So you have two pieces of information that you're exchanging to actually get access to your account a second time. And so I think that's that's a key part of when we talk about passwords and authentication. It's it's about identifying yourself. And then here's the secret that really proves I am who I claim to be. Right. That to me is the challenge that we we face today is it's not just how do I prove I am who I say I am, but it's, it's that declaration of who am I, who am I to you? And we've run into constant, constantly evolving systems where it used to be, you couldn't use your user ID as an email address, because the mainframes that these systems were on wouldn't support an at sign right, in, right. in the user ID. It was too long. Right, right. We've gotten better, but we're still at fundamentally the same spot where you have to identify yourself and then you have to actually use a secret. Well, and I think one of the things you, you said there, there was also key that is part of this evolution is we went from, it's one thing to know the secret handshake when you go to the clubhouse, right? But you've got to know where the clubhouse is and you've got to be there. Now that we're doing this on the internet, you could be anywhere, (laughs) right? And it's easy to know where the clubhouse is. So that that makes it a lot more difficult. So as you mentioned, humans are demonstrably horrible at choosing and remembering secure passwords. I mean, they can all do, you know, my kid's birthdays or my anniversary or QWERTY or, you know, (laughs) something that's easy to remember, but we're really bad at choosing good ones and then remembering them. And password managers do this really well. And it seems to me, at least, that it's much easier to do it this way. You know, you can generate them. You don't have to remember anything except for your vault password. And they're great. But 
despite all the obvious advantages that I see, very few people actually use them. The password managers, that is. Why, why do you think that is? I think there's fundamentally two problems. One is people are confused or don't even know about password managers. Hmm. As a computer security industry, we have made a habit of mocking people's uh, password journals. <laughs> yes. They, they are insecure. Mm. And we are we constantly have gone out and made the problem of securing yourself online something that was worthy to, to make fun of somebody else. And, and we made it difficult for them to understand. Um, in addition to that, we built some tools. And I think password managers are a great thing. Uh, the hardest thing that we've done in my family is we've got a password manager in our family, and I am very comfortable with technology and very deep with the security side of things. My wife does not care about this at all. And so the fact that all the passwords are in a password manager, there was a learning curve for mm. her to go figure this out. Why should I care um, <laughs> about this stuff? And I think ultimately that's that's the education piece that most of the consumer market is faced with. They don't know why they should care. Hmm. And I think honestly, the rules around why they should care about unique passwords are rapidly changing. Hmm. The reasons that we used to have um, rules around strong authentication or strong passwords and making them difficult and rotating the passwords is because we had this fundamental belief that if we made that password strong, that it would help make that user more secure. Mm -hmm. What we were doing was actually setting it up for a system where if my backend that has all my users and all my passwords, that database gets stolen, we were making it harder for the people that stole that database to go crack that password. Right. We weren't actually solving any problem for the end user. <laughs> we right. were solving a computer science exercise for hackers. Mm -hmm. And so it's confusing to people. Why do I have to do this? Well, you told me I had to, or I can't sign up. So, okay, <laughs> here I go. And right. so it becomes their pet's name with a number or number mm -hmm. and an exclamation point. There's even a comedian not too long ago. I'm blanking on his name at the moment that did a great bit on, on passwords and the journey that all of us mentally <laughs> took with um, making them more and more complex. Yeah. But I say all that is password managers are the best tool we have available today to synchronize passwords across devices, across family members. It's extremely difficult uh, when our kids went home from school during the pandemic and they all ended up with three or four different accounts mm -hmm. they had to mm -hmm. sign into. Yeah. And we were trying to swap, okay, you, you're using this device today, you're using that one, right. and you're just trying to figure out how do I sign each of you in just so you can do school that became a huge burden on us just because the passwords were difficult to manage. And so I think there's, there is, there are some great opportunities with password managers to, to make strides into making this more accessible for people. And I believe some of them are doing a phenomenal job, which is why I'm a customer of, of at least two of them. Right. So, yeah. Well, and famously, the guy from NIST, the guy who wrote the regulations in the National Institute of Science and Technology, NIST, anyway, the government agency yep. that handles a lot of this stuff, wrote you know many years ago that we should be rotating and changing our passwords. And he famously recanted that 
several years later when he's like, you know, what? I just I thought it sounded good when I did it, but he didn't have a real reason for it. And it turns out that that just made things worse, right? Because people would come up with one password and they would change it by adding a different number at the end of it, right? So they really weren't. They would technically met the letter of the law when creating these passwords, but the spirit was totally, <laughs> the spirit was totally broken, right? Absolutely. And I think NIST with passwords is is continuing to evolve. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, for, for your listeners that, that don't understand what NIST is, NIST is an organization. Um, it's the National Institute of Science and Technology, like you said, that reports up to the Department of Congress under the executive branch in, in our government, in the U.S. government. And so what NIST does is they, they write the standards for how the U.S. government implements their systems. And it, it's really standards for implementation. The journey that NIST has been on over the last couple of, especially the last decade, has been to evolve a lot of their documents a lot faster. Hmm. These government documents could stay stagnant for a while because technology wasn't evolving as fast as it was. The problems right now with attacks against passwords and attacks against people are growing exponentially. And so they are continuing to evolve. And you will see in this next year, them provide more and more guidance to achieve a higher and higher standard. The goal here is not arbitrary policy like that password policy was. The goal here is actual systemic improvement for people around how they're secured both as a citizen accessing government right. services and as our government employees do their work in service of the country. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I usually try to avoid politics on the show, but I mean, you gotta, I think you gotta hand it to the current administration. I think they really have stepped the game up in terms of cybersecurity and, and communicating more, not just with, uh, with companies and their own federal agencies, but also to the public about, um, threats and how to respond and, you know, their shields up stuff and some of the other executive orders. I, 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 it's long been overdue, it, 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 so I'm glad to see that. And NIST is certainly part of that. Yes. So when people think about things they could do differently, some other alternative to passwords, a lot of people like the idea of using biometrics to authenticate, you know, fingerprints and face IDs. We're used to this now on our, our phones, uh, modern phones, for example, you know, because you can't lose them, or at least not easily. I mean, I, whenever I talk about this in my book or the class, I talk about, well, you know, the, the classic spy movie where I pull someone's eyeball out or I cut their finger off for their fingerprint, right? So it's it's not that it's impossible. It's just it's just that it's not easy. And you can't, like a password, you can't forget it, right? I mean, you don't have to worry about remembering your, your eye shape uh, <laughs> or your mm-hmm. fingerprint. But you also can't change them, right? Like, for instance, the, there was a government agency, I always get it, forget which one it was, but there were the whole password database for that agency was leaked. So all those people's fingerprints are now out there somewhere in China or whoever it was that ripped them off and they can't change their fingerprints. So are biometrics really more of a user ID than a password? Uh, And if so, is there a role for biometrics to play in an authentication system? Oh, you set me up perfectly. (laughs) So I I, I love to talk about biometrics and what what their roles are, what they're good at and where the, the downsides are. So you set up perfectly the conversation about identifying versus authenticating. Hmm. And so biometrics can be used in two different ways. A lot of the users usage of biometrics that we think about is identification. We see um, an AI program that helps identify who you are as a person, maybe based upon that eyeball or the way you walk or the, the, iris scan. There's a variety of ways that we use biometrics to identify people. And that's where that database of centrally 
stored biometric data becomes a big risk. Mm -hmm. Centralized usage of biometrics is about identification. Who are you? Biometrics for authentication is different. So what happens with biometrics for authentication, if you look at the WebAuthn standard, WebAuthn is a new standard created by the FIDO Alliance and W3C around how users can authenticate. And the whole purpose behind that FIDO uh, standard that became WebAuthn is that the user's privacy must be preserved. And the concepts there are that the smartphone you have, the biometrics always stay on that smartphone. And that biometric is used to unlock something else. It's not sent centrally. It's not in some database mm -hmm. somewhere. It's tied to the sensors in that device. And because it's tied there, if your device is stolen, they would have to extract it from, the, from that device. Mm -hmm. But there's not some big central database of that template right, right. out there so that it can be stolen. And the concept here is really around there's something on that device, a key that is on that device that is unlocked. And we start to, in this WebAuthn uh, protocol and this use case of passwordless that you hear a lot about, mm -hmm. the scenario of using your phone becomes a lot like going to the ATM. You, when you go to the ATM, you plug your card in and you enter your PIN. Your PIN unlocks the card. Mm. That PIN isn't sent back to the bank somewhere. It unlocks the card so that the card can do what it needs to do to actually give you access to your account. Right. Your a uh, credential that sits on your phone that is protected by that biometric is exactly the same thing. It is a key that is on your phone that is unlocked by your biometric. However, biometrics have some problems, um, as you stated, and it's not just if they're centralized. They're also not, they're beginning better, but they've not been very good across gender, ethnic um, mm -hmm. uh, boundaries mm -hmm. where certain ethnicities may not have the same ridge depth and fingerprints, or, mm -hmm. you know, you see a lot in the news right now about the cameras. Are they able to treat people that have different complexion right. and skins the same way? And so we run into challenges with biometrics. And so that's why I call them a lot of times a convenience factor, mm. because what, ne what happens is if that biometric fails in this new standard for passwordless called WebAuthn, if that biometric fails, it falls back to the pin, you know, and this could easily be as simple as you go in. I mean, if you ever gone in, try to unlock your phone after um, you've used, you know, washed your hands or something where they mm -hmm. start to prune up a little bit, mm -hmm. your <laughs> fingerprints just don't reliably read <sighs> based upon the environment you're in. Yeah. And so we use biometrics in authentication on the device to unlock the credentials so that the user's privacy is maintained. But we also have to treat biometrics as a, a little bit more of a convenience factor yeah. that um, has some inherent security properties to it. But knowing that the fallback is I've got a pin that unlocks that, that device. Yeah, and the great points. And, and I, what I think a lot of people don't understand with a lot of these techniques is these things are held in what's usually referred to as a secure enclave, a, a special security chip on the device. So even if someone were to steal a device, it's 
supposed to be. It's probably not impossible. Nothing's <laughs> nothing in security is impossible. I'm convinced, but it's really, really, really hard to get that information out of that chip, and it all stays locally. You're right, and so they're, they've come up with these really fancy technical processes to like do queries, you know, to this device that lets you figure out whether it's a match without actually getting the match data out of that chip. And you're right, it's, the fact that it's all local to the device makes a big difference, and that means you have to have the device. It's something you can't do from Russia, right? I have to have your mm-hmm. phone to do it. So. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's a great insight. So you mentioned passwordless stuff. Um, so let's start talking about some of the more promising alternatives to these password based systems. Cause pe- again, people hate passwords. These systems are kind of, uh, they get kind of technical, but under the covers, they uh, often, they have to do with generating these key pairs, public and private key pairs. And we've talked about that on the show a little bit before, but how, how do these kind of new passwordless systems, how do they compare to using passwords? How do they, for example, do they have any better resistance against common things like phishing or data breaches? So when you look at passwordless, there's really two major definitions of anything that's a term inside a computer, you know, the computer space. And really what that is, there's passwordless and that there's the definitions that are under an open standard that has been driven by the FIDO Alliance and been driven by W3C. Then you have passwordless that is kind of a marketing term. (laughs) Ubico is a key part and a founding member in a lot of these organizations around the development of what is now the passwordless movement. We have been at the table working with the, you know, Apple's and Google's and Microsoft's of the world, trying to make passwordless in everyone's devices and cell phones. And we've The reason I keep mentioning W3C is because when they adopted it, the W3C is this organization that sets the standards for how things work on the internet. Mm -hmm. And when they adopted that, it became the things that were starting to be built into your computers, your web browsers, and your phones. This passwordless technology is based on, as you said, a private public key pair. But what it is, very simply, for those who don't have a PhD in cryptography, <laughs> yeah. is the server sends a challenge to the, to the user to authenticate and says, hey, it's 123 on the 15th of May. Who are you and how do you want to authenticate? And so what happens is that user has a, a key that is on a device for them that then signs that challenge and sends it back to the server. Because that exchange occurs and it's in band, the server knows, am I talking directly to you? Is there anyone in the middle? Like you and I are talking right now, but there's somebody in the middle mm-hmm. and we both know that. But the this exchange allows the server to understand that no one's in the middle, that I am who I say I am, and that because it's using a public-private key pair, it can't be fished. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge of phishing is two major pieces. One, can I trick you to give me your secret? Mm-hmm. If it's a password, I can trick you to type in your secret. If it is a public-private key pair, I can't really trick you into giving me your private key because your device is protecting that. So in the, you know, when we're using YubiKeys in the scenario, the YubiKey is protecting that key pair. It's generated on the device. It can't be extracted from it. So you're protected from letting that private key leak. Mm. The second part of this is, am I doing it directly in the conversation that we're having now? Or am I trying to prove it on my, my mobile phone that I am who I am? 
And as long as it's in the conversation that you and I are having, we understand what's going on between us. If it's on a device over here, I can be confused or tricked or mm. encouraged to, to sign and hit yes, right, yeah. just because I've gotten a bunch of prompts. Mm-hmm. If you go look, there's been a bunch of press lately around people um, getting fished on apps because they have been pestered with authentication <sighs> events. They're just like, shut up, let me in. Yeah, right. And they just start hitting approve. And now the attacker's taken over the account. Hmm. So a key part of what's, you know, what Ubico's built inside of the passwordless technologies with, you know, with the FIDO Alliance and all of our other partners has been that it's in this communication that we're having because we're looking at each other and we know that we're the only ones talking, we know the path between us, we can understand, is this thing trusted and how are, how can I make that decision whether to trust you or not? And that lets us control the conversation, which ultimately means somebody um, has to take over my device. Somebody cannot attack my account from across a world away because they're not actually able to spoof who I am because you're only trusting the keys on my device. So I hope that was clear. I get a little rambly at times, but I hope that was clear that, you know, it puts you in physical control of your keys and those keys can be on your, on a YubiKey. Those keys could be on a mobile phone. They could be on a laptop. And so we have a future here where accessing my accounts is very similar to unlocking the door to my house. And that is a, a concept that I think will resonate with people at large because they understand how to physically take care of a small set of things that help them get access to their world. Well, let me let me pick your brain on a little bit further because I think one of the and you alluded to this, but I want to dig a little deeper. One of the I think the interesting parts about these public-private key systems, and they've been around since the '70s, but we haven't really used them in this way or in these kind of these new passwordless ways until kind of recently. Is it's not a shared secret. It's not a symmetric secret. It's not something that uh, you and I have to f- establish at some point, and then you know what my secret is, and I know what my secret is, and then we go through some processes to compare those. And that with hashing and weird things, we've we've come up with ways to kind of make that indirect, so that we're not you know exchanging that over the over the internet as we do these comparisons. Nevertheless, if if you've got a copy in some shape or form of my of my secret, because you need to be able to at any point compare my secret to what I say my secret is, that's something that could be stolen. These asymmetric systems, these public-private key things are very different beast to the point where I don't care if you get breached because you, you don't have anything that could hurt me. Walk the audience through a little bit of how that is fundamentally different. So a lot of us are familiar with the concepts of, of signatures and getting your signature validated. You know, we, have a, we have a concept in, in our lives when you go buy, let's say you buy, have an opportunity to buy a house and you're in there and you're dealing with a notary your notary is watching you sign and then they're stamping that paperwork with, with their actual seal. And when you look at what that seal is, when that, those documents are taken to the county and they're filed, they don't have the, the um, notary seal, but they are able to look at the signature that they have on that document and know that only the person that had that type of seal that was authorized to have that type mm. of seal is the one that could have put that on the document. Mm. It's a similar concept that we're trying to to do with a bunch of ones and zeros, which is (laughs) I've challenged you to sign a document. You signed a document. And on the backside, what I'm doing is I'm just validating your signature. Does it look like what I expect that signature will look like? We're really trying to 
use a well-known process that we have in our everyday life inside a computer system. And so signatures and validating signatures, we've seen that since the times of kings with signet rings and right. wax seals. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the concept has been around for a long time. I have a key. I'm able to imprint my, my mark, my seal of approval on this document. And so now you, now you can know it's authentic. The difference is when you're comparing a secret, like a password, you either got it right or you got it wrong. You can enter the clubhouse because you know the secret <laughs> phrase. When you're looking at a signature, what you're comparing is, is it authentic? Does this look right? Um, and so you have a lot of signals that we can start to use to understand, does this look right? And one of those is, have you shared with me a copy of what your signature will look like? So I can mathematically validate, yep, this is your signature. It's not somebody who tried to spoof something that looked like it. And the way public-private key pairs, and I'm trying to avoid going you know, crypto <sighs> right, 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 101, yeah. 201 here, but the way public-private key pairs work is they are a one-to-one -one match. It's a cryptographic match that only that private key can produce a signature that somebody can use that public key to validate. Mm -hmm. And so protecting that private key and that the math behind that is a very well-established and understood math. It is a foundation of all of our internet, Yeah. but it is something that at the end of the day, it comes down to, is this authentic? And we use that signature and that public key to, to validate that yes, this is authentic information. I can trust it. And therefore, I'm going to let you in. All right. So you've already mentioned a couple of the, the proposals that are out there, Fido and WebAuth and, and whatever. Uh, are those the most promising proposals right now? Are there competing proposals? And then, you know, the nice thing about standards is there's so many to choose from, right? Yeah. Somebody famous once said, how close are we to settling on, on a standard? I don't think you'll ever settle on a standard. Um, I'll, I'll just be honest. I, I've been around enough of the standards agencies and I deeply respect um, the people that are, that are looking at what, what we are standardizing and how we're doing it. The, the challenge is all of us want to use the internet a slightly different way. And so standardizing personal choice is incredibly difficult as a concept. So, you know, where we are with WebAuthn and passwordless, really WebAuthn is in the FIDO Alliance. That is the best chance that we have of making a globally adopted solution for efficient, resistant, easy to use authentication solution for the masses. What we did inside the FIDO Alliance and building that standards, working with everyone and getting it interoperable and that standard let us make sure that the services that you're using and the, the keys that you're using, the devices you're using can all be used across these platforms to actually sign in. It's in its early stages. You know, when you look at it, passwords have been around here since the 1960s, as yeah, we said. Right. So they have a 60-year head start on maturity. <laughs> you know, the, these technologies for web passwordless and really the FIDO Alliance protocols that have become W3C and the concept that we call passwordless have only really been around for several years. Hmm. And so we've got some maturity, we've got some gaps to close for them to be ubiquitous. The reason passwords are so hard to kill is anywhere I can type in a, a, a word, I can type in a password. Right, right. It's the lowest so common denominator, yeah. It is. And I mean, if a keyboard works, you, <laughs> right. you can get in. And, and there is a higher bar for us to make all of this passwordless technology work. That said, what we're seeing on roadmaps, what we're seeing on the actual applications is it's all coming together. 
and you will see a rapid adoption of passwordless authentication over the next several years because people are starting to understand not just how bad the experience is of passwords, but how vulnerable they are with the passwords. Um, we are seeing anybody that's involved in the crypto world start to understand the risks of SIM jacking. Mm -hmm. If I'm using an MFA system that we've had available for a while to get an OTP code texted to me and somebody is able to reroute my, my text messages mm -hmm. to their phone, mm -hmm. now they're able to take over my account and steal my money. Yeah. Um, we're starting to see these attacks become commoditized, yeah, right? Oh, which yeah. is a scary conversation. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much, you know, the people that are listening know about, uh, there's a product out there, a product called Evil Engine X. Mm -hmm. And it literally is something that you can stand up and build a phishing site with scripts. And I, yeah. I'm fairly certain they have a help desk yeah. that you oh, can yeah. call and, and get help on actually how to set up my phishing attack. It has become a cottage industry. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so if I can get a help desk and I can just stand this up and I have a support contract for phishing you, we understand yeah. that the underlying technology <laughs> is fundamentally flawed. And so I think what's happening is you're seeing awareness rise of the problems in your average consumer base. You're seeing, um, as you said earlier, the U.S. government has has taken some bold stances around what they need to do. And if you go look at what CISA has put out and the work that's there, the, they've said that the FIDO uh, standard will become the gold standard for authentication as they move forward. That is where everyone's placing their bets because it's anchored in well-understood cryptography. It is anchored in distributing that trust. It doesn't have to have the overhead of the systems that were built in the 70s. And so we can be nimble, we can be secure, and we can actually be usable. And I think those are the things that are going to let us uh, start to see this technology win. But you know, it's 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 got some ways to go to mature so that everyone can use it. Well, and a lot of times what ends up happening is that there could be all the really smart people and really, you know, effective organizations out there promoting a given standard, but it usually takes some level of either consumer or big company adoption to really push it. And, and we just had, which I didn't know existed even as the world password day. I didn't know that was a thing, but Cinco de Mayo on the same day, that seems to be a, oh, I would have picked a different day, but okay. I guess you could have margaritas and talk, think about passwords, but, um, a lot of companies use that occasion to, you know, come out in favor of some of these passwordless things. And and Apple, Google, and Microsoft all came out with a, I don't know if it's a joint statement or what, saying that they're going to be supporting these things. So that's that's huge, right? I mean, that it's kind of like the, the uh, VHS versus beta, right? It, was, it wasn't really driven by consumers. It was driven by the companies that decided to adopt it and put heavyweights behind things. So that, that seems like a, a huge win, and it might be something that is going to finally kind of push this forward. I think it is, too. And let me be clear. I actually like the fact that World Password Day falls on May 5th because <laughs> passwords are something that makes me want to drink most of the time. Um, yeah. But you know, when we when we look at this announcement, I think this announcement is a great opportunity to see the next phase of adoption in this passwordless technology evolve with the conversation that they put out around pass keys or multi-device credentials, those uh, depending who's a PR blog you read. Mm -hmm. Those technologies and the fact that they're going to be in their products is going to make this accessible 
to everyday people because it's going to be easy for developers to build into their apps. Right. What makes me excited about this is it's that entry point that the platforms are now offering that is going to be, you will actually have to do work to not go in and implement the, the, yeah. the, the better solution. And people will have to implement passwords. It's going to be a journey for us to get off of passwords. But the fact that password lists will be so easy for them to implement because it's in the platforms, some of these use cases are being enabled for broad mass adoption it's going to unlock the path for all of us to use password lists in kind of the ways that we want to. What I mean by that is with pass keys, with multi-device credentials, you're going to be able to sign in to any of the sites that you want to, that you think are important or you just need to have access to. Mm -hmm. But in the sites where you want to make sure that you have the best security and the best privacy, you're then going to be able to enroll uh, something like a YubiKey, where you're maybe more concerned about making sure I am in control of that secret. So mm. if I'm going to go out and go to a bird watcher's website, <laughs> right? I don't care if people see about it, but maybe I'm out you know, accessing my 401k and yeah. I want to make sure that that has a different bar where I'm in control of things. It's going to give the user choice as to which route they go. Do I trust and leverage Apple, Google, and Microsoft to manage this for me? Do I want to manage it myself? And I think that's ultimately the great opportunity here is user choice. Uh, you get to choose what's right. Well, let's let's dive into that because um, I want to ask about uh, from the average user. So listening in the audience right now, it you know when I go to log into something now, I go to a web page and it presents me with the user ID and password. What does my daily life look like in this passwordless system? How do I use it? Do I have to worry about generating and storing these keys? Do, do I have to worry about multiple devices with these keys? How does how does it work? Like from a practical standpoint, what does it mean to me? How does my life change when I move to this new system? I think honestly, a lot of that is yet to be determined. Hmm. It's going to matter as to how the, how these companies build the systems and build the capabilities. What we've seen with some of the early standards around the password list, uh, the FIDO Alliance and the, the W3C standards is that there is a chooser that would kind of click up. You hit login, hit security key and a box can pop up and you choose what account you want to sign in with. Or if you only have one, it just it would just work and ask you for your pin to unlock the device. Um, hmm. So I think the user experience is part of the areas where I think we have a lot of areas, a lot of room left to grow. What we don't have is a clear vision yet for how this technology will be implemented, how developers that are leveraging this technology what creative solutions they will come to make it better for their users. But I do believe what you're going to see is Apple is going to have a set of keys. Microsoft is going to have a set of keys and Google is going to have a set of keys for you. If you're using those different platforms and it's, if you're on just one platform, then I think your life will be just fine. But if you mm. start using multiple platforms, multiple, multiple devices, there's no obvious way that this stuff is going to be be shared and synced across uh, across the platforms. You absolutely can picture a world where my MacBook and my iPhone have the credentials synced for me, but I don't ever see a world where my MacBook and my Android phone hmm. necessarily are able to sync that data. Those are all areas we do not yet know how it will evolve, and that user experience is is an open item for all of us as an industry. 
Yeah, so obviously the devil will come down to the details there. <laughs> we'll have to see how that yeah. how that emerges. These password systems you kind of talked about this are really entrenched today. I mean, we've been doing it for dec- literally decades. How hard is it really going to be to transition the web and all of its users to some of these new schemes? Like, you know, what will that transition look like? And in your estimation, like, how long is it going to take? Is this you mentioned this? We're going to be seeing these things emerge in the next few years, but. I mean, practically speaking, is it something that's going to be easy enough to switch to that, you know, in those same few years, you know, three or four years from now, we just most of the time won't be using passwords or this is going to be another decade down the road before this is ubiquitous? To be honest, it is my sincere hope that in three or four years, we see just wide adoption of passwordless. Hmm. The, the reality of what I see, though, is that we are probably farther out for us to get to a wide adoption of passwordless. So when I look at, you know, you know, going back to the password manager conversation, yeah. There's hundreds of accounts in that password manager. Yeah. For me to experience kind of a passwordless life, I need all of those services to be able to use this technology. Everything from the water company, the garbage company, yeah, right. the services that I subscribe to for media or newspaper, um all those companies will have to deploy this technology for this to actually be um, a consistent experience for me as a user. Right. Yeah. So I do see that there's going to be a long tail of organizations that are, you know, barely funded or don't right. necessarily have on-site staff to do this stuff, or you know, th- there's going to be a long, long tail of adoption. I think the most sensitive things will move quickly because they will be incentivized from offering a better experience and a more secure uh, service for their customers. But things like a utility where I don't really have a lot of choice, yeah, I think those are going to be laggards without continued increases in regulation. I, th- I think that's the wild card here. When mm. you see what's gone on with the U.S. federal government, uh, last year, President Biden signed an executive order that uh, drove, was it was a catalyst for progress around adopting these new technologies, enabling clouded um, these organizations to move to the cloud, trying to drive change. If we don't have those same catalysts in the local sectors, we won't see the change for a very long time mm-hmm. because it's it's hard, it's, it's going to cost money, and the education of consumers is also going to be a difficult part of that. No one really wants to be first if they end up having all the help desk calls. And so I think there's, you know, we're seeing the platforms move. There's a lot of services out there that use Fido and it build great um, scenarios for using it. Um, you can go out. I think Best Buy has WebAuthn built into their website. I think eBay has it as well. And you start seeing these commerce environments where they're worried about user friction yeah. They're starting to adopt it because they see the benefit of here's more security and here's a better user experience. I do unfortunately feel it's a very long tail, mm. just practically speaking, for us to get to a a passwordless life. Okay. All right. Well, uh, before we go, you did touch on two-factor authentication. I want to uh, I want to take a quick aside on that to talk about that. First of all, there's there's several methods today that we've been pre- presented with them. Most people now are, are seeing it because they're banks or somebody is requiring them to do it. Apple's been pushing it a lot. Some of our SMS, which you talked about that, and uh, there's these time-based pin codes, and there's, of course, hardware keys as well. So 
if I want to enable two-factor authentication, what should I be thinking about? How do I evaluate which of these models I want to use? Because a lot of these services offer all three, all the above. How do I choose which one is best suited for me? And in this passwordless future, do I still need two-factor authentication or is that no longer needed? So let's let's break this up into a couple of parts. Okay. Let's first talk about what two-factor authentication yeah. is. Because I think I want to make sure we have a good foundation to build on. When you go back to NIST, who we talked about earlier, they kind of define the factors as something you know, something you are, and something you have. And so something you know is a password or a PIN, like you unlock your debit card with. Something you are is the biometrics, which we previously discussed. And something you have is a device that you have or a hardware key, like you mentioned, like the YubiKey, where I've got something physically in my hands that I possess. Mm -hmm. When you talk about two factors of authentication, it means to sign in, I'm using two of those three options, mm. at least. If you're listening to this, please, anywhere you see, turn on MFA, go turn it on. Yep. It doesn't matter what the MFA is. Some MFA is better than no MFA. Mm -hmm. It at least creates a hurdle that means you're more work to attack than somebody who doesn't have it turned on. Yeah, right. Okay, so I want, I want to start with that foundation of like, turn it on, and then let's start talking about what's the best way to turn it on if you have options. Mm -hmm. A lot of services don't actually give you an option. It's give us your cell phone number, we're going to text you a code. Right, yeah. Um, and one of the really cool things that people did over at Apple, I thought was great, is when you're getting a text code for an OTP MFA, it shows up on your phone yeah. as you yeah. know, type in this, this OTP right from the messages. Yep. Ricky over there did a great job getting that feature out to market. So what I want to see is people adopting MFA. Now, when we start talking about what's better and what's, you know, what's worse, it really comes down to there's two classes. There's going to be fishable MFA and the phishing resistant MFA. When we talked about, you described like SMS codes, mm -hmm. you know, pin codes, OTP tokens, where I can type in the password. All of those are based on a secret and it's a symmetric secret. So all of the one-time passwords that you type in are all fishable. Mm. So how you do with it, um, turning them on is better than not, mm -hmm. but choosing one from the other, it's really up to you as to your user experience you want. I use the Yubico Authenticator app with our YubiKeys because it keeps all of my codes in one place. I don't have to remember where I've registered them, what I've set it up, and it gives me a really nice experience. But that's not always available. Mm. And so there's a lot of services. I have a uh, SMS that comes to me, um, and that is better than nothing. And I think that's, that's one of my key takeaways here yeah. is do something. Don't do yeah. nothing because you don't know what to do. <laughs> The other part of it is when we talk about passwordless and we talk about phishing resistant, the, a lot of the passwordless technologies are a true MFA solution like that debit card. That's why I keep going back to that example is I have a device and I have a pin that unlocks it or I have a biometric that unlocks it. And so the device I have is something you have. The pin could be something I know or the biometric is something that I am. Mm. So by definition for those use cases, it is a multi-factor phishing resistant authentication. And the really cool part that a lot of people aren't talking about from the executive order is that by 2024, the um, federal services that are out there that are offering uh, services to us as citizens are required 
to enable us to choose a phishing resistance authentication method. Hmm. So it, it's not that they have to go only phishing resistant, but they have to allow us as a, um, a security or privacy aware citizen opt in. And so when we talk about you know, the adoption and some of the other things that we talked about earlier, that's actually a piece I'm excited about because if the, these departments and agencies hit their dates correctly in 2024, we will start to see as citizens the opportunity to opt in and control my privacy better with the federal government. This would impact everything from the IRS to, you know, when you go fill out for a global entry card or something, right, all yeah. of these services could have a real actual impact in our day-to-day life. So. Okay. So last question, uh, given everything that's actually available and functional today, uh, we've talked a lot about things that are coming down the pike and in the future, uh, but given what's our, what's there today, what would you recommend to the audience for securing their online accounts? What uh, you know, your neighbors ask you, your family, you're at a cocktail party and someone knows you're a security guy and they ask you the question, what, for given what's available today, what is your kind of go-to recommendations for securing your online accounts? And does it, and you kind of mentioned some accounts might be more important than others. So, you know, maybe how do you evaluate which ones I want to go that step further with? So my recommendations across the board to people are get some YubiKeys and get a password manager and use your YubiKey to protect your password manager and then register your YubiKey wherever possible. So services like Microsoft um, accounts, services like the Google, uh, if you have Gmail, if you have, I think ProtonMail is another one, where you have your email. A lot of those are the most sensitive things to protect first. So get Mm -hmm. that password correct, and then register that YubiKey as a FIDO authenticator. And so what happens then is you've locked down your most sensitive account, which is your email account. The reason it's the most sensitive is all your other accounts will use your email to send mm. you password resets. Right. So it's kind of that thing that you have to protect first. And mm-hmm. you treat this as kind of rings. I protect my email first. Mm. I protect my password vault second. Once I have both of those things set up, then I start bringing in more and more data into, into these tools. So I've registered my email address as my user identifier. I'm using email for things that I trust more than I'm using SMS. And so, you know, I'm, I'm leveraging that security to the best I can. The outlook.com, you know, because they're able to use a Microsoft account, because it's able to go passwordless, you can get that phishing resistant passwordless authentication for email there. I'm fairly certain ProtonMail offers it. And I know there's others where yeah. if you want to opt into different services, you can maintain both privacy and security. And so I think there's there are some significant benefits to people by starting with a password manager and uh, protecting their email with YubiKeys. I'm not just saying that because I work at Yubico, <laughs> but I am right. saying that because if I go somewhere, if I get a new device, if I go to visit my family and I don't bring my laptop with me uh, or my phone gets stolen or died, I have a way to sign in if I borrow somebody's laptop. I can get back to my information mm. because I possess the secret that unlocks and, and or the YubiKey. And so it's it's really kind of that conversation where nobody actually just has one key to their car. I recently bought a used truck and the thing that's making my eye twitch is that my kids will often take my keys for that for that truck. And I only have one key for it. And that's why mm. my eye is twitching. Because if they, you know, I, I love them, but they're going to lose it. <laughs> and so if if I can't find it and I need it somewhere, I'm, I'm going to have a problem. 
And so yeah. I think ultimately that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to set yourself up so that no matter where you go, no matter what situation you get in, your information's protected and accessible. And so I think that's why we kind of, I give that recommendation back because password managers are the only ways to effectively always be able to access your secrets. And then the email. And so if I can protect that and my email with a, a YubiKey, I've then unlocked, I've really pr- done a good job of protecting myself the best way I can with what's available today. Since you mentioned YubiKeys, I'm sure a lot of my audience is probably actually not familiar, even if they've heard of them, like how they actually work. Like on a day-to-day basis, what does it mean to have and use a YubiKey? And you mentioned having a backup set of keys. I'm guessing it's also important to have a backup YubiKey. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about how a YubiKey works first, and then we'll talk about how do you uh, make sure that you're protected against, you know, being a human because <laughs> humans will lose things. So first, how a YubiKey works, there's several different ways that a YubiKey can be used for you. One, it can be used to, uh, to manage all of your one-time passwords that you could use to, to sign into a website. For example, my we do some shopping with Amazon. My one-time passwords for Amazon are on my YubiKey. So I can use any place that supports letting me register an auth app. I can use my YubiKey to store those secrets. Okay. Uh, the, the reason I do that is my secrets then can be used on my laptop or on my phone. So I use the Yubico Authenticator. I plug my key in and up pops the one-time password I need to sign into that site. And this key, by the way, let, let's be clear. This key is a USB device. So it looks like a flash drive. It does. It looks a lot like a flash drive. It is, it is, a, um, is a key that we, I keep them on my key ring. Um, I have several around for me at all times, but I keep it on my key ring. And it's just, it's always with me. And so sometimes I need to be able to sign in um, and I'm on my phone and I've my I'm, let's say I'm at my kid's soccer stuff and I'm looking at my phone. I need to sign in. My sessions uh, failed. I'm able to either tap it to the back of my phone because it works over NFC or I'm able to plug it in and actually use it that way. Okay. What we're trying to do is create something that's very easy to just plug in, open the app. And sometimes you have to touch the key. There's a little gold disc on the YubiKeys and that's to prove that you are physically there and that we can't have malware or something else on your machine right. actually generate the secrets. Right. So we want to make sure that you intend uh, to use the device. And so our key is very simple. You plug it in. When you're done, you unplug it. And it's it's been a very widely adopted solution for one-time passwords because it avoided a lot of the other steps that people are going through. They found it to be faster. Mm. Now, that's one way of using the YubiKey. Another way is what I talked about with the passwordless technology. Um, And in that case, the YubiKey works the exact same where you tap it or you plug it into your device and you're able to then just follow the prompts on the screen about how you sign in. And so the computer will tell you to insert your security key, you plug your YubiKey in, it'll tell you to to tap the the button on it, you touch the button and, and you're signed in. A lot of times I use the word um, security key and YubiKey interchangeably. Security key is what the industry calls it. Um, mm-hmm. It's a lot of times it's it's kind of like Kleenex though. Yeah, right, um, right, right. That's, you know, the image looks like a YubiKey. It's a very right. simple thing where you just go, yep, I know what I need to do. I go get out and I touch that. 
But then let's go back to the the human side of this. We are all humans. We will lose keys. Um, it's it's inevitable. To that point, my wife has a keychain that literally says uh, one of the little things that hangs on is that these are the keys I haven't lost yet. Um, <laughs> and I, I find that humorous because we're sitting in a situation where that's that's reality for a lot of people. Is yeah, right. It's just a matter of time. So I do recommend to people that you get more than one that you have these things backed up. It is a whole lot cheaper to buy a second YubiKey than it is to buy a second car key, yeah. um, you know, to use that, that analogy. But it is, it is your chance to control how you recover your account. If you always have your keys backed up across multiple YubiKeys, then you're able to not have to go through an account recovery. And depending on the website that you're on, that may be as simple as clicking, I forgot my password and you get a link emailed back to you, or that could be a much more arduous process because it's financial data and they want to make sure you actually are the person trying to recover the account. And so it it makes sense for you to actually just protect yourself that way and make sure you have a, have a backup. All right. Well, Derek, that was very informative. Thank you for walking us through all that. And I look forward to a passwordless future, as I'm sure much of my audience does. Uh, so thanks again for coming on the show, Derek. Absolutely. It was an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. Big thanks again to Derek for coming on the show. That was a lot of fun. And we learned a lot, I think, today. And more than anything, this passwordless feature just can't get here soon enough. So I will keep you posted, but I'm sure you will be hearing about that because if this starts uh, taking off, it's going to be pushed at you left and right. And we could only hope that the three major players involved here, Google, Microsoft, and Apple, will work together to have a common standard to allow you to use these across all of your devices. Fingers crossed. Now, I did kind of garble the story about the fingerprint database being stolen. In one sentence, I referred to it as both a password database and then talk about fingerprints being stolen. It was a fingerprint database. They had scanned the fingers of 5.6 million employees at the Office of Personnel Management, or OPM, in the U.S. government, and that database of fingerprints. And so those people have their fingerprints actually out in the wild, uh, and the bad guys have them. That's, that's not good. And that's one of the reasons that biometrics really is not a silver bullet for authentication. It's really more about a user ID than it is a password. Now, I am compelled to mention that YubiKey, like like we kind of said, is sort of the Kleenex of hardware keys. Uh, but if this is something that you're kind of willing to do, if you want to really have you know top-notch security and you are comfortable carrying around and having with you at all times one of these hardware keys, YubiKey is one of the big names in this business. There are others. If you want to look into it, there's one called SoloKey. So if you really want to kick it up a notch, if you really have something that you want to protect, hardware keys are a great solution for that. And just a quick note for my patrons, uh, I did get some bonus content with Derek. I asked him a little bit about his origin story, and we talked about another passwordless technology from Steve Gibson called Squirrel or SQRL. So if you are a patron, look for that in your private podcast. All right, I got another news show for you next week and lots of great interviews in the pipeline, including one with the CEO of CrowdSec. Uh, which is a crowdsourced firewall solution. It was really cool. We talk about firewalls and internet protections in general. I'm supposed to be interviewing Nate Wessler from the ACLU. And also I've got a very different kind of interview coming up, which will correspond with the reveal of a super secret project I've been working on. Many, many months of effort are finally coming to fruition. So stay tuned for that. 
If you have not already subscribed so you don't miss any of this great content, now would be a great time for you to do that. And while you're there, I would love for you to drop a nice five-star review on the podcast. That really does make a difference. All right, everybody, that's got to wrap it up for this week. Take care as always. And until next week, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.